Hi, I'm Reed Standish, and this is Talking China and Eurasia. Today, we're doing something a little different, as we try to understand the complex moment that China finds itself in today. Moody is cutting its credit outlook for the world's second-largest economy to negative from stable, citing worries about rising debt levels, persistently lower medium-term economic growth. Growth and foreign investment are slowing in China. Fears of a potential crisis in the property market for the world's second-largest economy. Sales are uh, on the downtrend, and I think this will continue for a while. The property market is in a multi-year restructuring process. The fast-paced boom years of the 1990s and 2000s. They're coming to an end. Youth unemployment in China is at a record high, with one in five young people in Chinese cities out of work. Now the question is whether China can convince households to spend more and save less, and whether that can be enough to compensate for other weak points in the economy. And this poses what's perhaps the greatest challenge to Chinese leader Xi Jinping's power since he became leader in 2012. But this moment didn't happen overnight. We can trace its roots back to a place you might not expect: China's complicated relationship with the Soviet Union. So we've dug through our archives and talked to some of the leading experts on Chinese and Soviet history. And today, we're asking, what does that past tell us about China's future? The new Chinese leaders revealed, led by President-in-waiting Xi Jinping, the seven men file onto a stage in the Great Hall of the People. Let's rewind to 2012. Xi Jinping has just been elected leader of the Chinese Communist Party, promising to weed out corruption, raise living standards, and make China stronger through what he called the Chinese Dream. We want our children to grow up well. And have better jobs and more fulfilling lives. The people's desire for a better life is what we shall fight for. Over the next 12 years, Xi Jinping's rule would take on a very different direction from previous leaders like Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao. For decades, his predecessors focused on opening markets and growing the economy, but Xi's put ideological commitment, national security. And Communist Party control at the center of Chinese policy, and one tool Xi Jinping uses to maintain this control is greater state power and intervention over the economy. Beijing has targeted some of China's most successful companies, imposing harsh regulations and fines on ride-hailing company Didi and tech giants Alibaba and Tencent. The disappearance of Chinese billionaire businessman Jack Ma, who hasn't been seen for weeks. Ever since he addressed a conference in Shanghai and heavily criticized the Chinese banking system, President Xi's gone a step further, calling for a redistribution of wealth to close a widening income gap. This approach might work to silence critics, but many economists say it kneecaps the private sector that propelled China's extraordinary growth over the last 30 years. But for Xi Jinping, economic growth just doesn't seem to be as important as decisions that prevent dissent and centralized control over the country. Just look at the COVID pandemic, when Xi himself was reportedly insisting on lockdowns for even minor outbreaks, and at first his approach meant that official case numbers stayed low, but the lockdowns also had a dark side. Forty-five Chinese cities are currently closed. The areas that are under lockdown account for forty percent of GDP. We are hearing from 
Chinese companies, you know, we're hearing from Huawei and we're hearing from car makers saying that, you know, the, the, the zero COVID is putting pressure on them. It's quite unusual to hear any organization within China speaking out like that. Businesses closed, youth unemployment skyrocketed, and eventually people took to the streets. In the southwestern city of Chengdu, protesters demand freedom. In the central city of Wuhan, where COVID began, they break down the fence that kept them quarantined. So what is Xi Jinping so worried about? To better understand this inflection point where China now sits, we need to go back to another one nearly 35 years ago. Today, Mikhail Gorbachev became the first Soviet leader in 30 years to sit down with the leaders of China. It's May 1989. Mikhail Gorbachev and Deng Xiaoping are sitting down to break down the walls between the two biggest communist countries in the world after years of tensions. But students in Beijing's Tiananmen Square quickly overshadowed the meeting. The 100-acre square in the center of Beijing was filled with ordinary citizens, onlookers, and supporters of the 1,000 college students who've been on a hunger strike since Saturday. The political situation appears to be deteriorating in direct proportion to the medical conditions of these few students who are refusing food and water. In the tense and hungry crowd, there was a poster welcoming Gorbachev to China, calling him an ambassador of democracy. That's because many protesters saw Gorbachev as a hero. By the end of the 1980s, he had concluded that ending the Communist Party's political monopoly was the only way to save the Soviet Union. He started huge reforms, promised openness, transparency, and political freedom, all with the hope that his country would still hold on to its socialist underpinnings. We need more enterprise, more democracy, more organization and discipline. Then we will be able to bring perestroika up to full speed and give new impetus to developing socialism. For Chinese democracy activists, this vision resonated. Some students took trains from far-flung provinces just to see him in Beijing. He was someone who offered a path to democracy that wasn't Western-style liberal capitalism, but something that was closer to home. And Gorbachev had visited while China was making changes of its own. The Honorable Wu Xiaqian, Foreign Minister of the People's Republic of China. Reform and the open policy have brought about unprecedented and spectacular changes in China. Both industry and agriculture have achieved a sustained and steady growth. The food and the clothing problem of the one billion Chinese has been basically solved. Deng Xiaoping was drawing his country away from central planning and towards a market economy. But a political opening? That was a hard no, especially from hardliners in the Chinese government. A few weeks later, Tiananmen Square would reach a breaking point. A brutal massacre of Chinese students and other protesters by the Chinese army. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. People used bicycles, pedicabs, whatever they could find to carry away the casualties. The official Chinese version claims only 300 people were killed in Tiananmen Square, all of them soldiers. Unofficial accounts say the death toll exceeded 7,000. When Chinese leaders look back at that moment in 1989, most of them believe that the course to violence by Deng against the protesters was the right decision, and that if they faced a similar choice today, the right choice again would be to use violence to put down any threats to the party. 
Chris Miller is a professor at Tufts University, and he's written several books about Russia, China, and the Soviet Union. He says for many in China today, that first meeting between two communist superpowers at the end of the 20th century looks like a fork in the road. What you hear from Xi is an effort to ensure that the rest of the party elite, the military, the top state officials agree with that basic judgment and therefore increase Xi's confidence that if it came to it, he would have their support in using violence again. A few weeks after the June 4 crackdown in Beijing, Deng told a meeting of top party leaders that the Tiananmen protest showed how important it is that China stay the course with socialism in order to become a developed country. He said China needed to focus on its economy to ensure nothing like Tiananmen Square would ever happen again. And after crushing the protests, China's economy had a brief slowdown, but it quickly bounced back. Meanwhile, Gorbachev's Soviet Union was in crisis. By the end of 1991, just two years after his visit to Tiananmen, the country's economy was in tatters. Factories ceased production. Transport ground to a halt, and bread lines grew longer. Look at it. They gave me only one bar. Only one bar of soap. Next thing you know, the Soviet Union would collapse into 15 uh, different countries, and the Soviet Communist Party would uh, cease to exist. She was a regional official at the time, watching this all in the province of Fujian, where, as chief of a local city, he struggled to respond to local offshoots of the Tiananmen protests. Many experts say those experiences helped inform Xi's decisions as leader to reverse political changes meant to stop the over-centralization of power and his later moves to reassert power of the party and do away with presidential term limits. The example of the Soviet Union, especially in the way that the Soviet history is described by Chinese scholars and Chinese officials today, is used as a case in point. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the people of this country wrote off Gorbachev. Obviously, it was after they realized they didn't have to fear him. And probably around the time they began to think that his attempts at economic reform had made their living standards worse rather than better. The balance of power had shifted away from him, and he was losing ground politically. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time, and an era comes to an end. I am ceasing my activities in the post of president of the USSR. The tricolor banner of the Russian Republic now flies over the Kremlin. Gorbachev isn't a hero in China today. He's seen as a failure, a man who dragged a superpower into ruin. Now, I think there's a, there's a lot of nuance of that misses out. For example, gridlocked Soviet politics meant Gorbachev had little room to maneuver for reforms. Not to mention that the Soviet Union had already been spiraling economically for decades before it fell apart. It was cause rather than consequence in a lot of ways. And this similar story with the, the superpower status of the USSR being cause rather than consequence of the, of the Soviet collapse. And Miller says it's not the only place where Chinese officials are making what he calls interpretive errors about how to apply the Soviet situation then to their own today. You know, I think that the Chinese government believes that centralization is the right response to the economic slowdown. The conclusions or the lessons that Xi Jinping has drawn from this story are not necessarily the ones that we might draw. That's Nadezh Roland. I work with the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm a distinguished fellow for China Studies and uh, been working with NBR for about 10 years. 
Roland says that for Xi Jinping, the conclusion was obvious. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union wasn't strong enough in defending its ideology. It had relinquished the fundamentals of its ideological vision. And so what Xi Jinping says today is like, we, we must never forget our original intentions. She calls this the ideological cement that he's trying to use to hold the country together today. Not necessarily in ways that would be going back to Marxist ideology or, you know, communist revolution, but something that is more towards nationalism. Mao Zedong, they say, saved the country. Deng Xiaoping saved the economy. Now Xi Jinping is saving the party. And we've seen that throughout since the beginning of his coming to power. President Xi says there is no People's Republic of China without the Communist Party. And everyone who wants to be in the bed, business, culture, politics, law, even religion, must dream the party's dream. The China dream, you know, like injecting those very proud objectives and, and being proud of the traditional Chinese culture and, you know, advancing our civilization. And I think that's a very, very important way for him to, to, to cope with this Soviet disease, if I may put it that way. Soviet disease might be harsh framing, but it's getting at something that tends to get glossed over. The way so much of Xi Jinping's obsession with national security and his tightening of control are rooted in a deep sense of the past that got us there. It's important to remember that the Chinese ruling party, the CCP, has as its origins a very close relationship with the Soviet Union, which uh, helped establish and fund the early CCP. In Moscow, Red China's foreign minister Chao Enlai signs a 30-year treaty with Soviet Russia as dictator Joseph Stalin looks impassively on. The treaty, the result of two months' secret negotiation, binds each to aid the other if attacked. Red China's boss, Mao Zedong, isn't saying what China gave Russia in return for such treaty aid as a $300 million Russian loan. China's a rare country today where people like Lenin, Marx, even Stalin are, are still seen as political guiding figures for the ruling party and uh, provided a lot of the intellectual scaffolding that still makes up the party's core ideology. Miller says that foundational to how the Chinese Communist Party sees itself today is the USSR and its history. Thousands of Russian tanks crushed Nazi resistance. Great success in space when the Russians pushed a man across the threshold. It has not been clear just how the Soviets were able to set up their coup without the Afghans realizing what they had in mind. From those first tentative relations with America... The exchange of notes between the president and myself opens a new page in the development of relations... To decades of hot and cold Sino-Soviet feuding and friendship. Revolutionary friendship is everlasting. In 1956, Nikita Khrushchev denounces Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong's longtime idol. The Reds say ill health prompted Khrushchev to step down. Observers say that his abortive feud with Red China that broke apart the front of monolithic communism was the real reason. Throughout that time, the two countries' past and presence were linked through the idea of how to build communism. The history of the collapse of the Soviet Union is something that is not just of historical interest, to China, but it's of absolute contemporary interest because many of the core features of both the political structure and the political ideology of, of the Soviet state are also shared with the current Chinese political system. 
It's something that Nadege Roland says we can see the impact of in China's approach to security today. We're seeing this increased obsession with control over the population, over the economy, over every single aspect of, of human, social, economic and political life in the country. The party has defined the term security as the absence of threat. This is something very unique to China. I don't think that any state defines security as the absence of threat. There cannot be any absence of threat. You cannot control what others might want to do to you. So it is a very expansive way of thinking about uh, about security. And so since security takes precedence over everything else, the calculation is also different. All of this is tied into how China has approached events like protests or uprisings that call for more rights and freedoms. This hostility has played out towards events like the Arab Spring. Mubarak deposed. Egypt's 18-day revolution defies all expectation. And the wave of so-called color revolutions that swept across the former Soviet Union in Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan. Hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets. Georgia regained its independence, and in 2003, came the Rose Revolution. Right over here at the parliament building, this is where people power took hold. Many experts say this stems from a deep fear among the Communist Party elite of similar regime change sweeping across China. Which is why you also see the same fear drive Xi's China to demand more and more ideological commitment. Under Xi, so-called Xi Jinping thought, the shorthand used to refer to his thinkings on how to develop socialism with Chinese characteristics into the future, have been pushed across society, from schools to workplaces to high-level politics. Miller says there's a deep irony at work here. She is trying to drive this centralization of power, as well as this refocus on ideology within the party, coming after several decades in which ideology took a step back in terms of its central importance. And, and I think she identifies both of those trends as vulnerabilities. But they mean that he's trying to pursue this policy in a society that has until recently been more pluralistic than I think the Soviet political system was in the, in the post-war period. And of course, even during the Soviet period, there were many people who questioned the formal ideology. But I think in the post-Dung period in China, the lack of focus in ideology has gone forward to a level that the Soviet Union never saw. And don't forget that ideological lockstep, it wasn't exactly good for the Soviet Union. Layers of internal propaganda weighed down the system. Nobody wanted to say anything that would jeopardize their jobs. The kind of mercenary technocracy that communism tries to promise, it's not really possible if you don't really know what's going on inside the country. If I were to compare China's overall performance in this decade compared to the past couple of decades, something that has changed dramatically that I feel is the root cause of all problems is the changed political culture. That's Neva Yao. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub, and I'm speaking to you from Tokyo, Japan. When we look at the 2000s, the information space in domestic China is a lot different. There were a lot more uh, independent journalists and, and media outlets who were able to do various investigations, for example, over various aspects of corruption in, in 2008 associated with the earthquake. That freedom helped China to take aim at graft and focus on hiring and promoting its best. Today, the country is facing a demographic crisis and serious economic issues. 
But she says bureaucrats and economists no longer feel safe to admit this in China. The result is more than just a problem of principle. This growing censorship environment leading to leaders unable to have access to accurate information about what's going on in in any of the sector is is one of the biggest problems that that we see associated to the you know China's overall performance in in this decade. So where does this leave us as we look forward? On the foreign policy side, it could make China's development model less appealing to other countries. Yao tells me that as Beijing has become more influential globally. It's offered its own path to economic growth as a model for other countries, one that doesn't involve any risky experiments with democracy. It's a model many leaders outside of China are still excited about. One of the prime example is Uzbekistan, where they even have Chinese consultants embedded in the government right now to learn how the、uh, Chinese experience lifted millions of people out of poverty, and, and these、uh, Chinese consultants are、uh, teaching Uzbek officials how exactly to implement these policies. And, and we have yet to see what are some of these concrete examples. But one of the report that I saw of a strategy that is being promoted is this idea of moving. Settlements and moving people away from villages and, and building new cities and modernizing communities and, and of course we see that when this was conducted in places like Xinjiang, it created massive problems. But as Chinese growth tapers off, China's model may also start to lose its shine. Chris Miller says that's the story of the Soviet Union that China doesn't want to pay attention to. The reason the legitimacy of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union dissipated over time was because it wasn't delivering the results that it had promised and that the populace had come to expect of it. And Niva Yao tells me she's seen that begin in China today. Many people are unfortunately stuck in this, the reality that was China 15 years ago. People are still talking about this idea of China being able to lift millions of people out of poverty, but. They won't be able to tell me, okay, what is the the definition of extreme poverty set by the Chinese government? Because once you move that definition, it becomes、uh, a lot easier to say you lifted so many people out of poverty. You cannot invent data and say that the Chinese economy is experiencing thirty percent GDP growth because if people see that domestically, they will think, okay, if the economy is doing so well, why am I not benefiting? Why am I losing my job? Nadej Rolon says these problems could echo outside China too. If the economy is not going that well, if the economic development is not as strong as it used to be, there's a domestic problem, and there's also possibly an international problem because a lot of what we've seen in the past decade, with China being more present on the on the global stage,、uh, having its footprint everywhere, and deploying its power and strength all around the world on all continents. Might have, as a part of this ambition to place China at the center of the world, to rejuvenate the nation, and to achieve the China dream of being a, a strong and great power in the world, might have to be slowed down as well. So, how how to manage that? I think that's that's the main question that Xi Jinping is asking himself right now. These are things that Xi Jinping cannot ignore, especially as. For the past forty years, there's been a sort of a social contract going on in China, where the party leadership has basically 
told its own population that economic growth, economic development would be delivered. And in exchange for that, the population would be expected to relinquish its political rights. If she can't find a different way forward to lead, Yao says a new contract might need to develop inside China. The middle class understands that right now their assets in China are, 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 are threatened. You know, this is becoming a system where the state can take away anything that you ever own, that you've ever built. So we see that, you know, not just to United States, obviously, in, 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 you know, there has been this uh, massive influx of Chinese nationals in the United States, but also in, in other neighboring countries such as, you know, South Korea and Japan. And in these East Asian countries, we see that the population that has been moving there are the upper middle class. You know, they are, you know, buying expensive apartments in Tokyo and in Seoul, you know, where traditionally, you know, this was done in other places such as San Francisco or, or London or Vancouver. But this particular middle class that is leaving right now are looking to leave temporarily because they know that the way that governance is right now is not sustainable. But they are just looking for a temporary solution. They want to stay close to home and they are looking for the hope of returning when the time is right. That's all from us today. I'm your host, Reed Standish. Katie Toth is our producer. Thanks to editors Carla Pedret, Kathleen Moore, and Pete Baumgartner. If you like this podcast, please share it and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. Finally, if you haven't already, subscribe to the China and Eurasia newsletter, which goes out every other Wednesday. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>